And if you would turn to one of those great doxologies, you'll find it on page 1180 of your pew Bible. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, page 1180 of your pew Bible. The human mind is a tremendous gift of God to us. With it, we do everything from learning and writing to driving and building. But unlike the animals, we don't just use our minds to identify the useful. We also hunger for what is true, what is eternal. To put it practically, we aren't content to simply know what is. We also want to understand what it means and why it matters and how it all fits together into reality. Our best artists and thinkers are those who come closest to answering these bigger questions. However, no matter how hard we try, the eternal always seems to elude us. Sometimes uh, we think we're close only to fall back into worshiping the creation again. Like an animal, our mind quickly becomes only useful. It identifies only the central, but not the eternal. This is, I think, the tragedy and the joy of being a human being. To know that you were meant for something great outside yourself and to struggle all your life to find that greatness. And the tragedy of being an American is that you waste most of your life seeking that greatness inside yourself. And only later in maturity do you look outward when you are unfilled and unsatisfied. The Dutch theologian Herman Bovink gives the answer to this tragedy. And he names this hunger when he writes, quote, man is an enigma whose solution can be found only in God. Or as Augustine famously said, thou hast formed us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. We simply cannot be satisfied with anything less than God. No other person or cause or empire is big enough to feed our hunger and to keep feeding it without ever running out. No matter how hard we try or how often PBS demands that we try, we simply cannot live like higher animals. We cannot repress forever the desire for something higher. We have a soul and it cannot be satisfied merely with the latest scientific consensus. This universal appetite leads to a simple conclusion. As C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The soul was meant for God and eternity and will not accept anything less. The soul was given to us, not so that we could simply keep the garden of the Lord, but rather that we might know the Lord of the garden. It was the mind and heart of man, his soul, that allowed man to walk with God in paradise. 
And yet, even then, even before sin, we could never comprehend God fully. He was then and is still now both hidden and revealed. He is both coming soon and never to be fully seen. And this is the grand vision with which Paul ends the letter of 1 Timothy. To endure his own sorrows and difficulties, Timothy must look with hope to the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the revelation of glory, what Paul calls here in Greek, the epiphany. And yet, just as Paul is describing Christ's appearing, he hurries to add that God will remain immortal, invisible, God only wise. In other words, the soul's feast will never end. Worship will never end. The Lord of Lords will come. He will be revealed. And yet we will never in all the ages of our existence comprehend him fully. This is God's glory to be an ocean we cannot cross, a planet we cannot reach. And yet at the same time, he is not very far from any of us. It is with this vision glorious that Timothy now is urged upward and onward by Paul. Please stand then for the reading of God's word, verses 13 through 16 of chapter 6. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom none, no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you and ask now that you by your Holy Spirit, through your word, would make something of yourself manifest this morning. And that our hearts and souls, as they were designed to do from the beginning, would hear your word, would see your truth and leap with joy and receive it as it really is the word of the living God. Work in us to this end, we pray. Restore us to our original purpose, which is your worship. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This letter was written by Paul to Timothy, his spiritual son, who is doing ministry in the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was a city dominated by two powerful cultural forces. First, it was home to one of the greatest buildings the world has ever known the temple to Diana or Artemis. Pilgrims, literally pilgrims from all over the world, came to see and worship in this spectacular structure. It was quite possibly the greatest temple structure ever built by human hands at any point in history. 
Many pilgrims, while there, would buy silver images of Diana to take home as objects of worship. And so the silversmiths in Ephesus were the first to be threatened when the gospel was preached by Paul. Second, alongside this incredible structure, Ephesus was also the Roman capital of the region. Alongside the worship of the Greek goddess Diana, the worship of the emperor and the cult of Rome would have been well represented in the city. Roman law and Roman military might were influential aspects of city life. It was a place filled with pagan Greek worship, but also a place filled with the lowest form of worship, religious patriotism. And so the city revolved around these two faiths, faith and country intertwined and deadly to the soul. As you can imagine, this was not an easy place to be a Christian or to plant a church. Christ's claims directly contradicted both Diana and the emperor. As a Jew, Christ and his followers, being Jewish at heart, of course they held fast to the Old Testament teaching. God is one and God is transcendent. Diana is a hoax. Her temple is a hoax. And behind her, a demonic force in the shadows, a puppet master behind the curtain. As for the emperor, the early Christians were eager to obey and even to pray for him, as we saw that in chapter 2 of this letter, but they would never pray to him. In those days, this was something like treason. Prayer for the emperor and to the emperor was what bound together the entire diversity of the Roman Empire. You would be allowed when you were conquered to keep your local gods so long as you worship the emperors as the sons of the gods. In that context, and increasingly in our own, Christians were at best misunderstood and at worst hated. They were th there were, thankfully, Roman laws to curb some of the worst persecution, but those laws were not thick enough to keep persecution away forever. Timothy would eventually find himself in prison, and Paul would be executed under Roman law. In the face of this kind of opposition, Paul urges him in verse 13 to be like Christ before Pontius Pilate, to make the good confession before many witnesses. When Paul wrote this, maybe he was thinking of his own experience in Ephesus. Not all that long ago, his life had been threatened by a riot in that very same city. To help Timothy in his confession and under the hand of persecution, Paul offers now what an old hymn calls the vision glorious, Christ's return in power and glory. This has always been, it has always been, the hope of Christians and the strength of our martyrs. Even when believers are being imprisoned, tortured, and killed, they see another throne, a judge who pronounces them innocent, no matter what the world may say. This vision glorious was given to the first New Testament martyr, Stephen, 
who while being stoned saw the heavens opened and Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. Paul here brings that same vision before Timothy as he predicts the return of the king and the glory of the immortal God in the unveiling of his son. So for today, consider with me two things in our text. First, epiphany. Second, doxology. So first of all, let's consider together the epiphany of Christ in verses 14 and 15. Timothy is told there to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the epiphany or appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, God the Father, will display at the proper time. The word for appearing here is the word uh, many Christians have used throughout the centuries, the word epiphany. By the time of the Romans, uh, this word meant something like a glorious manifestation of divine power. We don't have an English word that captures all that. So we simply say the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Timothy and the Ephesians would have recognized Paul's choice of word here. Paul uses the same epiphany language in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 to describe the defeat of Jesus' enemies at his sudden glorious appearing. Paul writes, quote, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, by the epiphany of his coming. This appearing or epiphany will also mark the day of judgment of the world, as Paul notes in 2 Timothy 4.1. He writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, his epiphany, and by his kingdom. Jesus' first coming was also an epiphany or glorious manifestation, as Paul writes in another place, that by this first appearing, our Savior Christ Jesus, quote, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In Greek thinking, the epiphany was a reference to the coming of a semi-divine king who would bring victory or restore peace. The same language actually occurs in Jewish thought prior to Jesus as the Jews looked for a Messiah or the coming of God in judgment and victory. In all these cases, epiphany is not just a coming. It's coming with suddenness with royal power. It is a coming to make things right. It is a coming that vindicates the king's loyal people. And that is why Paul here uses Jesus's full royal title. Did you notice this? Paul writes, this will be the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever Christ's second coming is in view, Paul in his letters likes to use all three titles. It is this living and royal expectation that must guide Timothy's good confession and his ministry and work in Ephesus. In a similar way, 
In our Old Testament reading this morning, remember Moses is struggling. Moses is struggling with his calling to lead millions of people through the wilderness. It's an incredibly difficult calling. And it's in that context that Moses asks for an epiphany using these same words. He says to God, show me your glory. In gracious response, God does show his glory to Moses. He grants an epiphany. And yet remember how God reminds Moses that even he cannot see God face to face. Moses cannot take God in. He cannot see all that there is to see with so many connections. It is this encounter between Moses and God that Paul has in mind as he writes these words to Timothy. An epiphany is what he predicts, but with God still robed in unapproachable light. A second important thing to note about this epiphany is that Paul emphasizes, did you notice this? That God will do this at the proper time, in his own time. More literally, verse 15 could read, he will display him in his own time. The decision to end the current world order will be made by God alone. And that moment is known to him alone. Jesus, you might remember, had warned his disciples against speculation. And I would warn you against that as well. Against trying to guess or somehow control the day of his epiphany. Jesus says in Matthew 24, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. And again, at the beginning of Acts and at the time of Christ's ascension, the disciples ask again about that time. And Jesus says, it is not for you. It is not your business to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. Now, why would Jesus, I don't know if you've ever wondered about this. Why would Jesus not know this? Why would Jesus constantly say that this is in the father's hands and in the father's hands alone? I think there's a simple but profound answer to that question. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, chose to not know. As the exact imprint of God in every way, as fully God, Jesus could and did have access to all knowledge, to all things. However, in his earthly submission to the Father, he chose not to know out of deference to the Father. It's a way of reminding us that although the Trinity is one God, each member of the Trinity has a unique role in our salvation. To the Father, to the Father has been given the role of planner, the one making the decree. It is the Father, you noticed in our reading earlier, is the Father who chose us before the foundation of the world. It's the Father who sends the Son in what? In the fullness of time. We might say in his own time. But sometimes we lose sight of the Father in all this. We get it into our heads that Jesus is the one who really loves us, that he more or less persuaded God the Father to be nice to us, slightly against his will. 
but nothing could be further from the truth. The time of Christ's epiphany rests in the hands of God the Father so that he, God the Father, might receive the unique glory that is due to his name. He has from eternity past planned all of this down to the moment, the hour, the son chooses, the son Jesus chooses to not even know the hour so that the glory of the decree will go to his father. Such is the love and profound deference that exists in the Trinity and I hope in those remade by the Trinity. Now, since we're still, still sitting here, or I'm standing here, we can safely assume that that day, that hour, that moment has not yet come. And that means something very important. That right now is not that hour, but it is another time the Bible talks about. The Bible calls this moment that we're in right now the day of opportunity, or sometimes the day of salvation. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, Paul writes the Corinthians, In a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When Jesus came home to Nazareth, where he had grown up, he preached from the book of Isaiah. He read these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, there's no better time to repent and turn to the Lord than right now. Remember, you are guaranteed no other opportunity than this moment, for this is the day of salvation. This is the moment of opportunity. But this is also a call to us as a church, to us as believers. We have a duty too in this time of opportunity, and it is to be ready and is to be waiting for our Lord. And that's the context here, isn't it? Paul here tells Timothy to keep the command without spot until the epiphany, the coming. Peter writes the same thing in 2 Peter 3. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Christ's sudden epiphany should motivate us as Christians to confess our faults, repent of our sins, and prepare ourselves to be ready to have our lamps burning. It's a good old question. It's a good old question we should ask ourselves. Maybe you've heard it before. Am I doing anything right now in my life that I would not want to be doing if Christ came back at this very moment? In this way, eschatology is meant to power true godliness. In other words, we live best as Christians when we work backwards when we start with Christ's epiphany and then work back to our own moment, when we live our lives as Timothy is commanded to do in the light of Christ's sudden coming. Paul grasps this so clearly in Colossians chapter 3. He writes, 
Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, epiphanies, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ's epiphany is strong and wonderful medicine to Timothy and to us. Notice, second of all, that as Paul holds out the hope of Christ's epiphany and all that comes with that, he sort of naturally, I think, uh, breaks out into doxology. Doxology, if you don't know uh, kids especially, uh, doxology means words of glory. Doxa is glory, ology words, words of glory. And that's what we have beginning in the middle of verse 15. Paul writes that the one doing the unveiling, the one who will unveil Christ, is he who is, quote, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. This movement from epiphany to doxology would have sounded completely natural to Timothy and the Ephesian church. In the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles, the epiphany or the sudden manifestation of a great ruler was always linked to the work of a god or a goddess. Uh, Julius Caesar, just to give one example, he claimed to be a manifestation of the god Mars and the goddess Venus. His adopted son, Augustus Caesar took the name and printed it on all his coinage, Augustus, son of God. Meanwhile, the pharaohs in Egypt, they claimed to be the earthly incarnation of Ra, the sun god. There was a rather universal understanding all through the world that great leaders were manifestations or epiphanies of a greater spiritual reality that stood behind the leader. Now, I admit to you, on one level, that's just self-serving, isn't it? Uh, some ruler needed to show that he was special, that he had a divine right to rule everybody around him. They, don't, they wanted to find a way to say, I'm not just another king. My reign is just not another reign. I'm somebody. We're going somewhere together. And here's why. It was self-serving. But this thinking was not completely wrong. Because God does raise up special leaders throughout history. Paul tells us, for example, that God raised up Pharaoh for the very purpose of using him. I'm currently reading a biography of Winston Churchill. Churchill and even reading uh, an entirely secular, and it is an entirely secular version of his life, it's hard not to conclude that his whole life was preparation for the critical role he would play in the world's greatest crisis. He may or may not have been a believer, I don't know, but you can't help walking away from his biography saying, that was planned, that was choreographed for such a time as this. Today this may sound all very primitive and strange uh, to our modern ears, but this idea is still with us. Empires, empires and movements 
always end up claiming some kind of divine right, some kind of manifest destiny. For example, today, we, when we hear the slogan, love wins, when that slogan is broken down, it is nothing less than a claim to manifest destiny, a divine or at least a semi-divine right to win and increasingly a right to rule and to prosecute. Of course, in reality, all it is is a rather clunky version of America's latest propaganda, salvation through sexual identity and self-expression. But when you put it that way, it has clay feet. So instead, we talk about being on the right side of history. However much things have changed, things remain the same. Mankind still feels the need to be right in some deeper, more permanent sense. More importantly, though, this way of thinking is not all wrong because it does have roots in God and in the Bible. God did say to David, remember Psalm 2, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. I will give to you the nations. Our longing for a leader or a movement that lasts, that will transcend this world and yet remain in this world with us, our search for a divine king who is also a man is not wrong. And yet all these claims that we have made will pass away eventually. Over time, they all decay. The Caesars, the Pharaohs, they're dead. Their so-called eternal kingdoms are abandoned. Their final legacy is as much oppression and violence, if you study it, as it is peace and progress. In the end, they just turn out to be cheap knockoffs of the real thing. Paul knows this. He knows this, and he wants to remind Timothy of it as Timothy faces persecution at the hands of the Roman state. Christ will return, and in his epiphany, the glory of God, the true God, will be manifest. It will be clear that God is God alone, and that he alone is king over the kings and lord over the lords. And to use Paul's words in Athens, God has already given evidence of this, by raising him from the dead. This doxology then is tied to the epiphany. Christ's appearing as Lord and Christ will set off, it must set off an explosion of praise to God the Father in which God the Father will now be universally acknowledged as the world's true maker and ruler. To express that, Paul uses several powerful expressions which we've considered before, so I'm just going to sketch them today. First, Paul says, if you look at verse 15, that when, God, when Christ is revealed, the Father will be seen as the blessed and only sovereign. Blessed here and everywhere in Scripture is a key biblical word, and I hope you'll, you'll think about it when you read it. It's not something you say when someone sneezes. It's actually a very deep theological word. It means deeply happy. It means at peace. It means to prosper and to flourish. Anne Boleyn famously took as her motto, the most happy, a claim that didn't age well at all. But we're still looking for this. She was too. 
a leader, a queen, a king who will bring permanent blessing and lasting peace on earth. Paul goes on to describe God as king over the kings and Lord over the lords. This was not just a title that he grabbed out of the air. This was a very powerful Old Testament reference. After the defeat of Pharaoh, for example, Moses is explaining the defeat to the people of Israel. And this is what he says, quote, the Lord, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty, the awesome God. Later on, this title, King of Kings, becomes a key word, a key phrase in the book of Daniel. As the exiles hear even Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of that whole age, say this. Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar realized this as he faced his own death and the death of his regime through the vision given to him by Daniel. Unlike so many other rulers, Nebuchadnezzar realized that his rule was limited. He didn't believe his own propaganda anymore. Paul really gets at the heart of us when he writes that this God, our God, who is king of kings, that he says next, alone has immortality. The things that every empire wants, that every movement in our society wants is to claim that history is on their side, that they win, that they have immortality, that they will keep going on and on and getting better and stronger. And yet God alone, when Christ is revealed, it will be clear that God alone has immortality. Martin Luther writes, he is king of the ages. With one wink of his eye, he beholds the eyes and crowns of all kings in contempt. They are the kings of but an hour. Because we're made in God's image, it is true that our souls are immortal, but our immortality is always derivative. It's a gift. God alone has it. He alone has immortality. And this really is the key problem for us as humans and for all leaders and movements. It's the problem that all the wise men and women have wrestled with. No matter how sure you are of yourself and your beliefs, it all ends in death. One commentator writes, philosophers and religions have no solutions, only coping mechanisms that often amounted to thin means of denial. The fear and horror of death remained, but God exists above human desperation and can therefore be savior from it, which in Christ and particularly in Christ's resurrection, he shows himself to be. Death is the ultimate reminder that we are not who we pretend to be, that our culture is not what it pretends to be, that our empire is not what it pretends to be. Lastly, with Exodus 33 in mind, that whole scene with Moses and God, Paul uses the, the, this doxology to add a disclaimer. He says, God dwells in unapproachable light. 
the God who will be glorified in Christ's epiphany is not the God or gods of the nations who are only idols. Rather, it is Israel's God, the unknown God of Athens, a God who cannot be taken in and cannot be captured or controlled. Here, once again, we see how Paul thinks his way through Exodus 33. Even Moses cannot see all of God fully. Only from the rock of ages that was cleft for him can Moses take in part some of God's glory. For God dwells in an approachable light. This is sketched just lightly. The vision glorious with which Paul ends the letter of 1 Timothy. He does add a few quick verses, verses 17 through 21, uh, really as last-minute instructions. But you can't help but read this chapter and come to this point and not feel that you've come to something like the original ending, even with the amen that's there. So as Timothy, imagine this, as Timothy puts down this letter, as it, however reluctantly, leaves his hands, his heart must have been filled with this above all, the epiphany of Christ and the eternal doxology in it. This is the true gospel that makes all the world's propaganda seem so lifeless, shallow, and temporary. Suddenly, maybe even Rome did not feel so big to Timothy. These kings of a moment are only the latest ones hopelessly trying to claim immortality in a sea of death and decay. And so in Paul's words, their efforts are futile and pointless, for they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the tragedy and some would get, say, the comedy of our human race. We must have more than this world offers, and yet we refuse to go outside of it. Instead, we worship the very things that were meant to lead us to God, which is just another way of saying we must go to him, and at the same time, we can't. After all, he dwells in unapproachable light. All our thoughts of him are too small. All our categories for him are too narrow. All our efforts to get to him are polluted. We simply cannot get to him, and yet we cannot find anything here that is eternal to satisfy us. We cannot go, and at the same time, we must go. And that's why we create propaganda. That's why we fall for the new charismatic leader, that's why we worship ourselves and everything else. We must have something that lasts. The hunger for it is endless. Here then is the true new good news, the good news of the gospel. Although we cannot go to him, he can and he does come to us. He can appear, epiphany, and he has epiphanied in the person of Jesus Christ. John begins his gospel by writing, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
And the author of Hebrews assures us, in these last days, he, that is God, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then Paul adds in 2 Corinthians, and I think this is my favorite, and we all with unveiled face, not like Moses, but in the new covenant, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Christ is where it all comes together. God's unapproachable splendor, our never-ending need. In Christ, God has come, is coming, and will come one last time. Epiphany has always been the answer to our deepest needs. And one last epiphany will bring the final never-ending doxology into place. Sinful men and women saved by grace will offer up eternal praise as millennia after millennia rolls by. And in that doxology, they will find true food indeed, a joy that lasts forever, that is immortal and only gets better with time. They will go, we will go forever up and forever in, and we will never find the end of God's glory. This is the vision glorious. This will keep Timothy and may it keep you. Live your life and think your thoughts backwards. Start with his epiphany and live now in the light of that glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we pray through your word and by your Holy Spirit you would give us faith to see and to understand that Christ is coming and he will be manifested and the world will wail at his appearing. His people will rejoice and the earth will tremble and shatter and be remade. Help us to live now, not under the propaganda of the moment, but in the faith of this great king who is coming. Liberate us from sin and its power and help us to live in this truth with this vision glorious before us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.